in chaos. Greg's theory was that order was projected on the universe, that it didn't exist at all, that it was a creation of the human mind. That order was entirely in perception and had nothing to do with what was going on out there in a completely chaotic universe. listening to Theft of Rule, a podcast, recording, a piece of data, but most of all, an antenna waving in the desert wind, sniffing out the possibility of life in an unforgiving universe, alien and distant to itself. A result of a joke. In response to a corny aesthetic trend called solar punk, this project proposes lunar punk, a dirty lens aimed at emptiness, darkness, promise, and horror. This being the first installment, we'll be fiddling with the knobs and adjusting the earwax for a moment before you'll be treated to the preliminary notes on Lunar Punk, written by a highly esteemed colleague of mine who goes by Osper, a diasporic drop of genius in the cesspool of French mediocrity. So prepare yourself and be situated, as we all slide towards disability, the shells we construct rebuild us as monsters in our own eyes, and we hurtle towards the absolute terror of reconciliation. Concerning these last few holdouts, it is important to note that any action taken by this government is within the bounds of legal and acceptable actions as discussed in the concurrent report produced by the Committee on Further Events and Zoning. With regard to the disaster that occurred, fault has not been found by this commission as that is outside the purview of this commission. The following conclusions have been reached. 1. The disaster began when a sudden imposition of standard law caused catastrophic failure of the Fourier harmonic transport system. 2. This failure began a cascade of systems failures, including life support systems and structural integrity of the zone. Three. Internal atmospheric pressure was measured and determined to be impossible. A massive expansion of compressed gases into standard space rapidly occurred. 4. The communications array proved to be completely unintelligible, making it impossible to coordinate an emergency response or evacuation. Furthermore, 
The residents found themselves suddenly aware of their inability to speak foreign languages and cooperation became impossible. 5. As the community began to react, water levels rose and were filled with raging serpents. Those who had predicted the disaster were strangled or consumed. The families of these victims watched in horror. The predictions of these individuals match the events closely enough and correlate to each other in sufficient detail that their predictions were used as material in this investigation. Evidence provided by the victims' families suggests that on the Monday prior to the disaster, every child in the zone began wailing simultaneously. At noon on the following day, a flock of pigeons committed mass suicide by diving headfirst into the Pollock statue in Watson Park. Finally, a stray dog was found painfully defecating a roll of newspaper dated to the day after the event, begging the inhabitants of the past to take warning, evacuate the zone, and decommission the Fourier harmonic transport system prior to the introduction of standard law. Given these conclusions, the commission formally absolves itself of any wrongdoing and strongly urges the continued expansion into unintelligible areas as per state policy at the given moment in time. Not tonight, honey.
very first truth one should want to wake up to is that if we live long enough in the long run, we all end up living under the condition of disability. That's to say, at some point, what we call our body-mind drops from under, under us and requires the help of others in such a way that we're no longer regarded as viable, conform to norms. Uh, we're no longer able. One should remember that able is necessarily incomplete as a term. It's never just able. It's always able to. Able always begs a context. It necessarily exists as a junction or moment in something bigger. This means that the opposition between ability and disability is always a contextual modality. Chronic disability shows this to us. It's a complex whole that has no single one red thread. There's a need for new frameworks to help people handle themselves as they want to handle themselves. But more than that, we've got to change some shit materially. This is not to advance a flattening out of disabled people's condition and political struggles either. The fact is that some of us are invalid according to ableist standards. Their existence is conditioned by infrastructure and logistic chains that's not considered a priority. Their needs are necessarily secondary considerations to the progressive trajectory of societies. There are rich people and poors, whites and others and blacks, paperless people and citizens, addicts who are caught in the act and those who function well enough that they don't see their own stabilizers and regulating substances, neither do those around them. All melding in and molded by a great social soup, and because we're all just a fraction of it, we only pay attention to what we encounter. The emerging patterns depend on the structures that can recognize themselves as structures and act on the whole accordingly. Even as the whole conditions and regiments these very structures, whether directed, oriented, dimergic, change doesn't happen out of pure mechanistic determination. But enough about soup. One of my concerns in writing this is simply that people who are considered valid or able never have to really consider the fact that their condition can change. In fact, this revelation only comes to them through and as horror. The reason why it's horrible is twofold. Disgust at their own potential weakness, and realizing that the lack of empathy and disgust they feel for disabled or invalid people will be extended to them at some point. It's the horror of realizing that things as they are is not a desirable state of affairs for everybody. The world is a safe place for certain bodies. It's the horror of realizing your life is an overbearing presence in the lives of others and that you haven't been paying attention. It's a horror that works in collaboration with the horror of shame, in that you're suddenly one of the bad ones. The good thing about horror is its potential for becoming. Horror is necessarily about revulsion and disgust. It's necessarily about reaction. But it can't stake a claim to the developments that reaction induces. Horror deranges. It moves things around, but doesn't tell you how to rearrange them afterwards. It's your guts, not mine. To be horrified is to be touched by something that reveals the most deep-seated issues at one's core. Then one can choose to stay in that discomfort or exploit it and understand either its root or its movement. You either go running back up the river, hoping to find the source, or you go into the flow and accept that where you're at is never fixed. Only one is concerned with the now. The other necessarily doesn't the other necessarily calls to the now as a reference, not as a terrain of existence.
Horror can offer a way out by making explicit that which you have attempted to bury deep inside. Even Lovecraftian horror, which looks to endogenic difference as a horrifying testimony to a radical outside that is a negation of everything West. Even Lovecraftian fiction gives you an exit in the fact that it ungrounds you. You, white man reading the story of an academic realizing he's not what he thought he was, you're being introduced to the fact that your civilization is not the center of the universe anymore, that it never was. Horror uses disgust to reveal things to you. What is disgusting about no longer being at the center? What need, what secret wound compels this grievance? Maybe lunar punk would come out of horror that seeks to highlight the flaws of modern governance, of high overhead productive systems, of the failures of uh, society and democracy. The second truth one should wake up to is that technology is nothing else but the extension of capacity. Even that truth demands expansion and connection. Technologies are situated and becoming, transformative and affecting, maintained and disruptive. A precise example. The project of cyborgization is the project of making people apt at living in space. Real space, deep space, all spaces, the point of cyborgization as a child of cybernetics, or wiener and beer, is the ability to make a system viable contra the outside of that system. The, oh, God. Sorry, I'm not currently reading the thing. I'm going to get back to reading the thing in a second. I just realized that the two most famous people I know in the field of cybernetics are literally named wiener and beer. That's fantastic. Okay, I'm going back in. This precise example connects to all the adjectives I just stated. The history of cyborg cyborgs or technology is to be put side by side with that of the military complex, itself an outgrowth and territory cultivated by state and capital. Technology is not created by state powers nor by monopolies, but is conditioned by them because of their historical role in monopolizing space, capacities, and resources. When deployed in a systemic manner, Technologies are not simply purposeful. That's to say, their intended function is not the end point of their effect on the world. Make your technology perfect, it doesn't matter. There's always negative externalities. On top of that, there are many plans and many interests invested in the different technological poles and institutions around the planet. The implementation of technology doesn't serve one single uniform plan, but is in fact a terrain that offers possibility to political and economic entities to secure space and extract capital. This terrain can be seen, observed, shifted, and therefore changed. In fact, technology doesn't happen in the factory, it happens everywhere, in the infrastructure of daily life. To say technology is purposed is to imply that it is made into a tool that can serve the ends of a specific plan or inclination. In that sense, to repurpose technology is to reorient its capacities to different ends than the ones the tech was being developed or deployed to serve. Steal a printer, print EpiPen injectors and respirators. You know? Um, I think it's clear that I don't want to go platonic object on this at all. I don't think there's a perfect hose somewhere out there and all the hoses we have are imperfect copies. I think there's precise capacity related to needs that are already expressed in specific contexts 
and then there are situated applications of engineering principles to each context. Imperfection is another word doesn't work how I want it to. A technological implementation is a moment you decide to pay attention in a wider process of developing and situating capacity. The technological object of the rifle made in Russia in 1890 is not going to be able to function towards the same functional ends in 1450s South Africa. This is what I mean by the fact that technologies are situated. Uh, they're not just intellectual heritages, but also precise moments and totalities of capacity development. The fact is that technologies are implemented by who needs them, according to the needs and or plans of the them in question. The technology is not just the blueprint of the artifact, but the implementation as it's revised when encountering reality. Think of the creolized technologies of India. A technology is situated in the sense that its development couldn't have been birthed the same way in all other contexts it could have emerged from and has emerged in. Furthermore, its deployment sees its changing shape to adapt to the land or changing the land thanks to the action of a monopolistic invisible hand, the way public transit was destroyed by monopolies in America. A technology is not situated means that a technological implementation is never in inevitable. There's no golden path from the d disparate sources necessary to its engineering up to the finished product. The car was never destined to exist as it does. It erupted out of the push and pull of market forces, themselves feeding off of extractive regimes of colonialism, capitalism, and all sorts of isms. Businesses pushed toward certain ends and adapted to the path they had entered, the path that included regulations, resource limitations, public opinion, market forces. You know, the 1910s car market in America had an overwhelming number of electrical cars and vapor-based motors. Gas won through monopoly dynamics. Eventually, jaywalking was implemented as a legal infraction to make sure cars could keep on making money as a technological implementation. From there on, infrastructure would change the very social fabric of cities. Los Angeles, for example, is not a city, it's a car landscape. Suburbs and centers and economic hubs crisscrossed and nested by the road network. Contrast this to historical European neighborhoods whose heritage value is confronted, rubbed, and eroded against the necessities to expand the outdated and overgrown infrastructural capacity of the road network. Here you see how technology is but a tool, always. Even when it feels like it has its own intelligent presence, there is no sapience. There's only the realization of impulses and plans from actors. Technology is not an actor. Technologies are situated and in some sense situating. If you choose to look at a precise technological object, you will get clues to the context that has birthed it. Look at papyrus as an implementation of the technology of writing and weaving as they serve the capacity to circulate information language being a technology as well. Papyrus couldn't have been made without the resources necessary to its deployment as well as the contingent context, you know, the weather and climate conditions at a time and place, what resources the people there are toying with to what ends. In fact, papyrus was less widespread than stone tablets in certain areas precisely for that reason. Cheaper to make papyrus at a certain place, cheaper to make stone tablets at another. Cutting back costs is the first priority under the regimes that see the deployment of each media. 
But the very form that a technology takes when it's implemented will necessarily express the necessities of its particular context. We see prosthetics that aim at making people more apt and able to live in society, becoming more and more integrated into the norm, into systems of accounting where people have to make their artificial body parts work according to systems that go beyond their control, agency, and perception. Recharging a mechanical arm that uses a program you don't know, that's constituted of parts you don't know, that you can't repair personally. Alienated not just from your body, but from its replacement parts. You can never untie your ability to use your organs and limbs from the license under which it works. This is not your arm. This is an arm a company has lended you. This isn't your wheelchair. This is the company's equipment. This is violence made upon peoples whose agency and subjectivities are already contested in most spaces of, Chica of society. I almost called Chicago society. Well, I called society Chicago. Anyway. Cultural pseudomorphin Mumford. It's true that as technological implementations build on their predecessors, you get certain capacities, short-circuited or reoriented, in the sense that an ineffective technology supersedes a more effective technology, and this needs to be tied and observed in close relation to state power, monopolies, and capitalistic pursuit of economic growth. The enclosure of commons is the cleave that binds capacity towards the single task of accumulating capital. A third truth I want to see more accepted. Mental health is not separate from bodily health. Descartes' worst contribution to life was the mind-body dualism that prevented people from embracing the fact that a mind and a body are not just coextensive, but co-constitutive. Constitutive. To speak of lunar punk with regards to today is to think through lunacy punk. People are slowly going crazy every day a bit more. Everyone you meet is on the verge of breakdown or breakthrough under the weight of isolation, overwork, and the realization they might never see their loved ones in the flesh because to hug them is a deadly danger. Everyone is coming home to the fact that the life they've been living is unviable. This is horror again. Lunar Punk tells us that there's no going back. This is it. The roiling waves of madness and weirdness are not ending. They're unfolding. There's always a new current, a new wave. This is it. Lunar Punk tells us the Earth is becoming moon. Hence, we have to adapt as astronauts would and build our ships, our bases, our suits. We have to adapt because the world is becoming unlivable. It does feel like a magician is pulling the rug from under our feet. Our abilities are shifting or disappearing, our agency is a runaway, and this all seems hostile, focused, apocalyptic, guided, but it's not. The world is uninterested. We are the world. This motif of the Earth becoming moon is an attempt at decentering the blue dot in the dark space from our perspective. This doesn't mean Earth as a territory of experiences disappears. It's simply no longer Carl Sagan's blue dot. It's no longer an inexhaustible haven or a precious pearl, but a barren corpse floating in space full of warming possibilities. And we're of it, even when we feel ourselves alien to it. Maybe we shouldn't repress that alienation, but simply reorient it. All is going to shit. The situation is excellent. Some liberal think tanky. 
Cyborgology meets architecture, the cybernetic arrangement that allows capacity to serve the purposes set by a body. Social reproduction, self-care, domesticity. I think it's important to talk about the fact that our current moment requires a number of people to self-medicate their way through life. Running towards the future in the hope of leaving behind problems you don't want to think about is a good way of having those problems come back to bite you in the brain later. We are all trying to make it through life, and going through this continuum of experiences with their breakthroughs and breakdowns through its constant firing of information to our body-mind. This constant input-output exchange, extraction, subtraction, and going through this we are affected. No shit. We are sensoriums. We're sensible, sapient elements of bigger holes. We try and make the weight of existence bearable. We cope. What is art but humanity coping? Speaking of cope, do you take drugs? Yes, you do. You just don't think it's drugs. Drugs are substances that cause a change in an organism's physiology or psychology when consumed. Think of the, inst think of the internet as a drug. Think about the fact that drugs are whatever changes you. If you reduce the very wide already definition of drugs as not simply being the world, and what you get is that drugs are things that introduce a different pace to your capacity to apprehend the world around you. See accounts of trans women on E at different stages of their chemical transition. See non-bodybuilder trans men and cis bodybuilders who start taking testosterone and how the account of the influx of T in their body changes their perception of themselves as bodies. See recovering addicts who have to take antidepressants, etc. See the internet as a drug. See the population of Twitter as people on a hit. No wonder it's such a bad trip. Nobody... No wonder everybody is either laughing or crying or screaming. Drugs shift your effects. They make the line go up or down. Drugs make you more this or more that, depending on how much you take in, how your organism reacts to the inoculation. Footage of black people getting murdered always gets me numb and unable to move myself the same way. I become trapped in jelly. I feel myself as slower and lumbering, while the decorum in front of me moves relentlessly. It's a drug effect. It feels like being numbed by something else. Some event has affected me. The fourth truth is that there's no separation that can't be abolished given time and energy. Interdependence is a recurring pattern recognized and imposed on specific arrangements. The question of whether these arrangements are institutional or not has more to do with blowback and frequency than any essence. The question of whether or not something is an institution has to do with its ability to coerce passively or actively people into following its civil code. The state is a greenhouse for growing monopolies. It's not just a knife or just paperwork, it's a knife, a wallet, and paperwork tying those two together. The state is a monopolizer of monopolies. Bordeaux is fucking French. Um, it is the entity that dictates what is capital and where it flows. It's the bully that creates a playground where other bullies can foster. It's the teacher who says, I don't care who started it, to the kid that's being bullied. The state is a greenhouse for monopolies to which it dictates what is acceptable and what isn't. Governance, automation, etc. AI can't be our enemy. I mean, it can have diverging projects, but I just mean that we shouldn't conceive of a general intellect as being a fundamental enemy. AI can't be Satan. And even if Satan existed, why should it be our enemy? Corporate personhood and ecological degradation. Yeah. It. The fossil fuel or energy lobby. Industrial civilization. Monopolism. Mammon or whatever else name can be used to personify it, all of them point to a general pattern that seeks the optimization of the environment towards the ends of a runaway project. That's to say that an IT bootstraps the ecosystems of the planet 
and possibly off it to pursue the accumulation of, of capital. I don't think that whether it does so through the emergence of monopolies, states, markets, specific infrastructure is the most important question. These are all instrumental and practical to the project of IT. It's a hard world for little things. I know you don't have time to talk to plants. So I'm going to talk to them for me. when our revolution has been finally stamped out and they tell you things are better now <laughs>